Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got the story of potential voter fraud in Truro causing the delay of their special town meeting originally scheduled for Saturday. And we've got the results of this past week's special town meeting in Orleans. And Ira Wood is here with a matter of opinion, embracing the power of ish. A voter registration drive by the part-time resident Taxpayers Association in Truro has led the town to delay a special town meeting that was originally scheduled for tomorrow. A highly unusual number of people have registered to vote in Truro over the last few months, leading to the filing of 66 voter registration challenges. According to a press release from the town, the Board of Registrars has authorized hearings to be held on all the objections. The town moderator will continue the meeting for 14 days so that all of the challenges can be addressed before the special town meeting in accordance with state law. The meeting could be continued for another 14 days after that, depending on how the residency hearings are coming along. As it stands, the meeting is now scheduled for 5.30 p.m. on November 2nd at the Truro Central School. The dispute centers on a plan presented by the Truro Part-Time Resident Organization to its members in August, asking them to change their voter registration so they can exert more influence at the special town meeting. At stake are competing proposals for a new Department of Public Works facility, as well as a proposal to build 160 units of housing on a plot known as the Walsh property. In an email to members, Reagan McCarthy, vice president of the association, said members should register to vote for the upcoming town meeting, even if only for the next year. The association had retained a lawyer who advised them not to broadcast their efforts publicly, McCarthy said in the August email, adding it was to avoid the attention of the existing political machine, who may intend to stop them from having a voice in Truro governance. Between June and September, 88 new people registered to vote in Truro, according to Town of Truro data. It's the highest number of newly registered voters in Truro during that time frame in the last nine years. David Sullivan, former legal counsel to the State Secretary of the Commonwealth's Elections Division, said the plan was illegal under Massachusetts state law. Sullivan said people can't just pick wherever they want to vote, as residency for voting purposes has to do with objective facts and not subjective interpretations of where their home is. Sullivan said encouraging people to register illegally is a crime, but criminality is predicated on the parties involved knowing that what they are doing is illegal. A court would still throw out your vote if the court determined that you are not a legal resident. The state's voting manual says that residence is an objective concept and not a subjective concept. That is, what counts is not where a person thinks his or her residence is, 
or wants it to be, but rather where the objective facts show it is. No single fact determines a person's residence, but factors that help determine it include residential tax exemptions, business interests, and vehicle registration. State Senator Julian Sear of Truro said the efforts of the Truro Part-Time Residence Taxpayer Association might be considered a conspiracy to violate election laws, and he would consider asking the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office to investigate the matter. Truro Town Manager Darren Tangeman said it was disconcerting to see misinformation regarding voter registration circling throughout the town. He said people who were misinformed about the registration process are encouraged to reconsider their intent to vote. Tangeman said all the hearings of the Board of Registrars will need to be concluded before the special town meeting can move forward. Due to the high number of complaints, the meeting may be rescheduled again. Tangeman said he doesn't anticipate being able to hold the meeting on November 2nd. You can read much more about the situation in this week's edition of the Provincetown Independent. In related news, the Truro Select Board voted unanimously on October 10th to dismiss the investigation into Vice Chair Sue Arison's alleged violation of the town charter. Town Council David Jenkins recommended that the board terminate the investigation due to the absence of an actual complainant. The board voted to launch the investigation almost three months earlier, but the effort never really got off the ground. In June, the board received a letter from an attorney claiming to represent a registered Truro voter who wished to remain anonymous, alleging that Arison had violated the town charter by engaging in activity related to the pending renewal of town manager Darren Tangeman's contract. Truro Town Council made several unsuccessful attempts to identify the complainant. In the absence of an actual complainant, Jenkins recommended that the town cease the investigation. Board member Bob Weinstein's motion to cease the investigation was unanimously approved. Provincetown is on schedule to hold its town meeting on Monday, October 23rd. There are 14 articles on the warrant, but only a few of them are likely to cause much discussion. The main event will be the discussion about a $2 million land purchase on Nelson Avenue, as the expenditure must be authorized by town meeting voters for the purchase to proceed. There are also two short-term rental regulations on the warrant, a ban on fractional ownership of homes, a liberalization of accessory dwelling unit rules, and three articles that help move forward plans for housing on town-owned land on Jerome Smith Road, Shankpainer Road, and Bradford Street. The land purchase was announced in July when the select board approved a negotiated price for three adjacent parcels on Nelson Avenue, amounting to nine-tenths of an acre. Developer Tom Tanariello had previously secured permits for 12 residential units under the town's inclusionary bylaw. Ten of the units would have been sold at market rate, while two would have been affordable ownership units. The planning board approved that project in January, but Tanariello put the properties on the market in April anyway. With the addition of a third parcel, the properties could currently support 18 units. But once the town's sewer system is expanded to include Nelson Avenue, the switch would allow for as many as 60 units, according to Provincetown town manager Alex Morse. 
If the town buys the land, all the units built there will likely be deed-restricted in one way or another, either as affordable rentals or affordable ownership units, perhaps with a new kind of restriction copied from Vail, Colorado, that town meeting voters endorsed this spring. Articles 11 and 12 would create a bylaw to regulate short-term rentals, by preventing corporate ownership of short-term rental properties, and by limiting short-term rental certificates to two per person. Both articles would create exceptions for existing short-term rentals, even if they are corporate-owned or are held by someone with more than two. Article 14 would remove existing year-round restrictions on the use of new accessory dwelling units and add a ban on short-term rentals in ADUs and a prohibition on splitting ADUs off into condominiums. Town meeting will start at 6 p.m. on Monday, October 23rd at Town Hall. Voters who have missed the last several elections may have been marked inactive in the town's voter rolls and should bring identification with them for voter check-in. The Nauset Regional School District is drawing on the high school renovation project's contingency budget after construction on one building revealed structural issues that will cost more than a million dollars to fix. According to Greg Levasseur, chair of the high school's building committee, The project's general contractor found problems with windows in the end building that required the architect to develop a completely new scheme for the building's exterior, including new windows and a new facade. During its September 28th meeting, the regional school committee authorized a change order that would take the additional money out of the contingency budget. The project's total contingency budget is $8.2 million. Factoring in these latest costs, the district has already used up slightly more than half of that budget. But 60% of the project is underway, according to Levasseur, and the worst part should be over as far as change orders go. School Committee Chair Chris Easley said concerns about costs were allayed somewhat when the Massachusetts School Building Authority announced it would grant $7.2 million in additional funds to Nauset as a cushion against rising construction costs. Easley said the money will likely go to reducing the cost borne by taxpayers for the project. The project is still on track to meet its original timeline. Phase 1, which includes the construction of two new buildings that will house science classrooms and a new cafeteria and auditorium, will be completed before the 2024-25 school year. Students will be able to return to those buildings in the fall of 2024 as construction begins on remodeling the remaining A, B, C, and D buildings. That phase will be completed by August 2025. Final touches, including landscaping and cleanup, will be done by 2026. Terra Luna's Tony Pasquale is calling it a wrap. After 30 years of neo-pagan cuisine, the North Turo restaurant closed its doors for the final time on October 9th after a rousing goodbye party. Tony is, of course, also the host of the Squid Jiggers Blend radio show on Wednesday mornings from 6 to 9 a.m. here on WOMR. Tony said the reality of the situation probably won't fully sink in until next spring, when he typically starts to prepare for the season ahead. For now, he's focused on returning the art that adorns the walls to local artists and finding a home for the antique tchotchkes that dot the restaurant's shelves. 
Terra Luna began when local chef Reina Stefani stepped into Adrian's restaurant on Shore Road for dinner in 1992. When Adrian Sear left the building, Stefani struck a deal to rent the property, and in 1993, she opened the doors of Terra Luna. Pasquale bought the restaurant from Stefani in 2011 after working many years as her sous chef. Lexvest Group bought the property, including the 19 surrounding Prince of Wales cottages, in 2021. Lexvest converted the cottages to short-term rentals after they had served for many years as summer housing for workers, many from Jamaica. The changes eventually caught up to Terra Luna. Rising expenses, including a potential rent increase, made continuing the restaurant seem untenable. Lexvest president Eric Shapiro told The Independent that the company is looking for a new chef for the 2024 season. As for Tony, he said he will keep the name Terra Luna as he turns to offering pop-ups and catering in the coming years. He will also, of course, be found here at WOMR every Wednesday morning cooking up his signature blend of garageophonic psychedelic primitive chunka chunka jingle jangle power pop proto-punk. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Residents at Monday's special town meeting in Orleans overwhelmingly supported a move to fund eight new full-time firefighters to boost their understaffed department. Now, voters need to pass an operational override of $925,000 at the November 7th town election to pay for the salaries and fringe benefits. The town presently has five firefighters per shift, An additional eight firefighters on staff would mean seven firefighters per shift, allowing for two ambulances or an ambulance and a fire engine on the road simultaneously. Fire Chief George Deering said the additional firefighters will result in improved response to emergencies and improved quality of life for both residents and firefighters. The plan is to begin hiring in January, so the new firefighters will be part of the shift rotation in time for next summer. The base salary of a new firefighter would be just under $62,000. Orleans voters also passed Article 4, which sought a separate override of $500,000 to be put toward the purchase of a new ladder truck for the department. That funding also needs to be approved at the special election. The money comes on top of $1.6 million previously approved for the purchase through the town meeting in May. While recreation officials saw potential for the former public works headquarters on Bay Ridge Lane to accommodate pickleball and tennis courts, voters felt otherwise Monday night. Article 10, which sought Community Preservation Act funding for a feasibility study to explore the possibility, failed 240 to 207. Residents also voted down an article which sought the adoption of a specialized energy code that would have required new residential construction bigger than 4,000 square feet to be built to higher energy efficiency standards. Opponents saw the request as an infringement on their personal freedoms. 
The article failed narrowly, 189 to 179. Voters approved an article seeking permission to petition the state legislature to create a local bylaw regulating the use of pesticides in town. The move follows a similar article that was approved by town meeting in May to petition the state to allow for a local bylaw governing fertilizer use in town. Voters approved the appropriation of free cash to fund an alum treatment in Pilgrim Lake, which was closed to swimming for most of August due to an algal bloom. The article passed 217 to 52. Proponents cited the treatment as an effective short-term way of treating phosphorus pollution in the lake until the area is brought into the town sewer. An article seeking a Proposition 2.5 override to create 1.5 new positions in the Recreation Department also passed. The funding also will be used to cover other costs related to the operation of the Recreation Department. And speaking of the Orleans Rec Department, Tom DeCiervo has been hired to run the town's rec department as its next director. Town manager Kim Newman said last week that his start date is November 13th. DeCiervo is currently the director of recreation and parks in Woodland Park, New Jersey. He becomes Orleans' third recreation director since February, following the resignation of Alan Harrison and later Patricia McDonald who left her post less than a month after being hired in April. Town officials are hanging their hopes on D.C. Ervo after a tough few years for recreation in Orleans. Issues ranging from flagging programming to lackluster communication plagued Harrison's tenure as director, a position he held from 2018. In December of 22, he was placed on paid administrative leave before tendering his resignation in February. McDonald was hired as rec director on April 1st, but just weeks after starting in the role, she resigned to return to the town of Sandwich, where she had served as assistant recreation director. Council on Aging director Judy Wilson has been serving as acting recreation director since McDonald's departure. She will continue in that role in a limited capacity during the transition to the new director. While there are plenty of challenges, DeCiervo said he welcomes starting in a new community. He and his girlfriend have found seasonal housing in East Ham, but he said he's hopeful the Lower Cape will be a place where they can put down roots and call home. The well-groomed entry to the GFM contractor's yard on Route 6 in Wellfleet may look good, but the Zoning Board of Appeals wasn't interested in aesthetics when it met on October 12th to decide whether the operation is allowed by the town's bylaws. The board unanimously voted that the use, which members categorized as heavy industrial, isn't allowed there or anywhere else in Wellfleet. The decision sends the matter back to state land court. The debate between the ZBA and property owners Donna and Steve Giovanni of Truro, doing business as Great White Realty, has been going on for nearly three years. The Giovanni's bought the lot at the corner of Old Wharf Road and Route 6 in January of 21, cut down most of the trees, removed the topsoil, and began grading without getting any permits. Paul Fowler, 
the building inspector at the time, issued a cease and desist order. Great White and its attorney, Ben Zender, appealed the order. Meanwhile, GFM leased the property from Great White and set up a contractor's yard there. The town's subsequent enforcement actions led to two more appeals, which have been merged with the initial one and are still pending. The neighbors on Wixom and Old Wharf Roads have vehemently opposed the operation. In February, the neighbors learned that the Wellfleet Select Board had reached a settlement with Great White and submitted it to the judge for review. The neighbors opposed some of the concessions the town made, including allowing GFM to store sand, topsoil, and gravel on the site. In June, the judge sent the case back to the ZBA, which led to the board's October 12th hearing. The board voted unanimously to reaffirm its denial of permits for the operation. It then voted unanimously not to allow bulk storage on the site. The case will now return to court, where a date will be set to consider the neighbor's motion to intervene. There's more trouble for the proprietor of a live music venue in South Yarmouth. Brian Serpone is being sued for $2.9 million in a proceeding filed on September 22nd in U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Boston. The lawsuit claims that Serpone transferred $2.9 million prior to declaring bankruptcy for Levy Brakes Investment Group, a company he founded in 2015. Levy Brakes used investor money to buy Cape properties, remodel them, sell them, or rent them at a profit. In October of 21, Serpone filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy just a week after the State Securities Division had filed a civil administrative complaint against Levy Brakes and Dennis Serpone, Brian's uncle, for violations of state law and willful violation of a consent order they had entered into with the state in May of 2020. A forensic audit on levy breaks done in 2022 found that $2.9 million in transfers had been made to four bank accounts prior to the bankruptcy filing. Brian Serpone was also the holder of all four bank accounts, the complaint alleges. Brian Serpone is also the principal owner of the Music Room in South Yarmouth. The September complaint seeks to reclaim money for the 77 creditors of Levy Brakes Investment Group. A total of $4.5 million in claims were filed. The majority of the claims were made by small investors, some of whom lost their life savings in the investment scheme. Wellfleet Oysterfest is in the books for another year. This year's edition, organized by the group formerly known as SPAT, now the Wellfleet Oyster Alliance, brought almost 20,000 oyster lovers together last weekend to slurp and celebrate Wellfleet's legendary bivalves. More than 100,000 fleets were shucked at seven raw bars, and the weekend's festivities culminated when an East Ham native beat out competitors from across the U.S. and Canada in this year's shucking contest. 23-year-old Ben Morgan defeated Canada's Adam Todd as Chad Egland from Portland, Maine finished in third. The organizers upped the ante on the competition this year by recruiting shuckers from across the country and Canada and doubling the cash prizes for top finishers. 
Morgan is the head shucker at Native Cape Cod Seafood in Provincetown, and he has twice won the shucking competition at the Boston Seafood Festival. Last year, Morgan took second prize at Oysterfest after finishing third in 2021. SPAT, the acronym for the organization's original name, Wellfleet Shellfish Promotion and Tasting, was a play on the word for the oyster larvae, but it always required a lot of explaining. WOA President Nancy O'Connell said the name change better reflects the nonprofit's mission. Shellfishing is the number one year-round industry in Wellfleet, involving roughly 10% of the resident population, or more than 300 people. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. I have a friend who I meet about once a month for dinner in a local restaurant, but for many years the evening started badly because he was always late. A small thing, I know, but it made me angry. It made me feel disrespected and that he was wasting my time until I realized that his conception of how long it takes him to make the drive is totally wrong. He won't admit it, but it's ten minutes longer than he thinks it is. So instead of meeting at seven, we've settled on meeting at seven-ish. We may all have watches, and we may all speak the same language, but we all mean something different when it comes to time. If we say, in a bit, or a few minutes, or this afternoon, or even specify the hour, each person has their own perception of what this means. My wife has an office at home. I have an office in town, and at the end of the day, when she calls and asks when I'll be home, I reply, oh, in an hour, or in a half hour, or in ten minutes, something like that. What drives her insane is that when I say a half hour, I don't mean thirty minutes. It can be a little more, maybe a little less. Why this bothers her, I have discovered after many arguments, is that she is a careful custodian of her time, a habit that's enabled her to write many books and to manage her career, as well as a busy household. So if I say I'm going to be home in 30 minutes, she will actually allot 30 minutes work time at her computer. Time for my wife is an exact measurement. Time for me, at least in this instance, is an approximate measure, an intention, a block of time in which a series of tasks must be completed. How, for instance, could I possibly say I will be home in exactly 30 minutes? How do I know how much traffic there will be? Or if, when stopping at the post office on the way home, I'll receive a notice for a package? Or if I'll have to wait in line behind a person who's filling out a money order? How often have you called the plumber and been told, okay, I'll be there at noon? You know he didn't wake up this morning expecting your pipes to burst. You know he has other jobs. You know he has no idea how long they'll take. So when he says noon, it means you're on his radar. It signifies his intentionality contingent on uncontrollable events. And yet, if 
only you'd been able to pin him down to five-ish tonight or seven-ish or even midnight-ish, you wouldn't have stayed home all day to wait. Long ago, time was neatly broken down into units based on the mean solar day, but we all define them subjectively. When someone at home asks for your help, you say, be there in a minute. Do you really mean 60 seconds? Of course not. You mean, as soon as I save this file, or as soon as I finish this sandwich, or it's third down and two. I'm waiting to see if the Patriots get the first down. There's no way you mean exactly 60 seconds. Likewise, when you say, give me a sec, You don't mean one-sixtieth of a minute. You mean you need a short amount of time to put on your pants or finish a phone call, which would take longer to say than to do. Science now tells us that the mean solar day on which the original definition of a second was based has not remained the same. The Earth is gradually slowing, and so are we. Time just doesn't mean what it used to. How often have you driven over the speed limit to get to the movies only to have to stare at 10 coming attractions or busted your butt for a doctor's appointment only to be told she's running late? Face it, everything is delayed these days. Flights, traffic, tax refunds, construction projects, software releases. As technology has increased the pace of life, we expect things to happen instantaneously and we're almost always disappointed. We're a society in desperate need of wiggle room. It's time to admit the truth and embrace the power of ish. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program, and thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. Now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio, WOMR. Just move your mama and go down.